and welcome to City Break Ideas, episode 14. I'm Marion Jones. I run City Breaks, my little travel podcast, which three weeks out of four takes you episode by episode through some of the world's most interesting cities to visit, giving you, as I like to say, all the background history and culture to inform your visit, which you'd research for yourself if only you had the time. But once a month, I like to take time out for a City Break Ideas episode, which basically involves me stealing lots of good ideas from other nice people who run travel websites or travel podcasts. Their websites are often not only cities, but I cherry-pick from them. And I would like to make it clear I have, of course, sought their permission first. They're all happy to be involved, and I'm very happy to thank them. All the websites I'm going to talk about are pretty comprehensive. Absolutely no way I could cover a tenth of what's on there in the few minutes allotted to each one. So I'm hoping, really, that if you're intrigued by what you hear, you'll go off and find the websites themselves and continue learning from them. And to that end, I'll put the website addresses in the show notes. I had some very nice feedback from last month's guests, some of which made me smile. I saw a post on Twitter from Stefan from Barclay Square Barbarian, which said, The inimitably entertaining Marion from City Breaks Cast has just published her latest episode. And I did very much enjoy the message I got from Marion, who runs the Love Travelling blog, who was kind enough to say that she'd very much enjoyed listening to the episode and that I must be, quote, a true radio professional. Oh dear, oh dear me, no, if only. Anyway, I hope this month's guests will be just as happy. So, without further ado, let's start our tour of, I think it's four different continents in all for the episode, with Becca. Becca, whose website is called travellingtheworldin360.blog, and who introduces herself as follows. My name is Becca Arlington, and in September 2018, at the age of 24, I quit my job to go travelling for six months. She goes on to relate the months of planning that went into this, the 13 jabs she had, the countless flights she booked, the fact that she wrote copious notes en route, took loads and loads of 360 photos, and a mere, as she puts it, 16,000 other pictures on her camera and phone combined. And she summarises the content like this. My blog posts contain breathtaking safaris, at least a million sunset pics, an abundance of culture, plenty of disasters, small triumphs, activities I won't forget in a hurry, new friendships across the globe, beautiful sunshine, the occasional downpour, and much, much more. So yes, as I said, far, far, far too much for me to really do any justice to in a few minutes, so I've just picked a couple of things. The blog is divided into sections. If I just read you out the titles, you'll get the idea. African Adventure, Amazing Australia, Incredible India, Notable New Zealand, and stunning Southeast Asia. Certainly for the two sections I looked at in detail, Becca had been on a group tour, often lasting several weeks, to each of those countries, and much of it wasn't city-based. And so to give a flavour of that first, before we get to the cities, I've taken a little bit out of her African adventure, which was actually the very first trip she did. 40 days, 8 countries, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia and South Africa. She went with a group, all organised by a company called G Adventures, who are linked to something called Planetera, a non-profit organisation promoting sustainable tourism 
and lots and lots of business and education projects. So a project that Becca describes as being, quote, passionate about giving back to local communities, conserving natural environments, celebrating culture and creating work that's actually will lift people out of poverty. And the early posts in this section are about a safari through Serengeti. Regular listeners will know that I do like a little linguistic duel every now and then. And here's our first one. Safari, did you know, is Swahili for journey. I did not know that. And there are just the most amazing pictures that Becca's taken and a whole lot of details about seeing lions stalking for prey and close-up sightings of elephants. I enjoyed the description of the hippos. Quote, Lots of females bathing and two males fighting for territory and thus dominance over the females. There are descriptions of zebras heading to a watering hole, of crown cranes, or Ugandan cranes as they're also known, they're on the Ugandan flag by the way, who, did you know, always mate for life. And one of my favourite little tidbits, there were lots of warthogs too, known, says Becca, affectionately as pumbas, that word meaning foolish in Swahili. So I think that gives a flavour of much of the blog, which is about travelling through the countries, across all sorts of terrain, and very much not city-based. But on the India tour, incredible India that is, while again much of it does deal with overland travel, there are certain cities which feature too. So I decided to have a little look at those. Becca flew into Delhi very early one morning and noticed that, quote, even at this ungodly hour, there was lots of beeping, swerving between lanes, ignoring red lights and general chaos on the roads of Delhi. She goes on to talk about the first day in Delhi before the group tour set off when she and a friend went on a rickshaw tour going to a Sikh temple where they were told that 25,000 people are given meals for free every day. They took their shoes off, went inside, saw some prayers and heard some music on tabla drums. And the next day it was off to see one of the seven wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal. Again, another linguistic piece of info. Taj Mahal apparently means crown of the palace. Who knew? Built in 1632 by the Emperor Shah Jahan as an emblem of the love he felt for his wife. Becca relates the story. Shah Jahan had several wives, but when his favourite wife was dying, she asked him to prove that he loved her the most, and that's why he had the Taj Mahal built as a mausoleum for her tomb. So both she, Mumtaz Mahal, as she was called, and later he, were buried inside it. They visited Jaipur too, known as the Pink City, and where in fact even still today every building within the walled old city is still painted a pink terracotta sort of colour. Why? Well, Becker explains. The Maharaja Sawai Ram Singh was expecting a visit from Queen Victoria's son Albert. This was in the year 1876. And hoping to make a good impression, the Maharaja decided to have a museum built and named after the prince, and to have the building painted terracotta pink, because that was the colour of welcome and hospitality. The Maharaja's wife loved the new colour scheme, so she asked her husband to pass a law making it illegal for buildings to be painted any other colour than Jaipur pink. And as Becca says, this law was passed in 1877 and still remains in effect today. You can certainly learn lots of little historical and cultural tidbits from the blog, but there's also material which just gives a general flavour of the atmosphere. For example here, the food. 
So, in her description of visiting an open-air food court called Masala Chauk, Becca tells us what she had to eat. Five pani puri, those are samosas with a sweet chilli sauce, a masala dosa, described as a sweet pancake in English, some masala chai tea, and some Indian ice cream, known as kulfi. A bit later on the trip, she was in Mumbai, and she pauses to explain the history of the naming of this city. Colonised by the Portuguese in the 1660s, they called it Bombaya, which meant Good Bay. When the British came along, they anglicised it, so it became Bombay, until in 1995, the name was changed to Mumbai after the goddess Mumbadev to reflect the heritage and the local culture. Becker describes visits to Chaupati Beach, favourite picnic spot, she tells us, for locals and tourists. She also went to Mahatma Gandhi's house, known as Mani Bhavan. Actually, it wasn't his house, it was the house of a friend, and he used to stay there whenever he came to Mumbai. And it's been turned today into a museum and a research centre. She went to a Hare Krishna temple, about which she says, We were allowed to enter if we removed our shoes, and we were given a sugar and coconut square to eat, a Hare Krishna custom of generosity and sharing. And there are descriptions too of a visit to the Jain temple and to the hanging gardens, so lovely terraced gardens up on a hillside outside the city. So there then, just a little insight into one or two bits and pieces from Becca's blog, but there really is so, so, so much more there. I hope you'll go and have a look. I would summarise it as being a blog full of enthusiasm. Somebody who just loves going off to see what's out there, wants to learn about local cultures, very respectful of them, and share it all with those who visit the blog. And, apologies Becca, I have completely failed to mention at all one of the really significant things about the whole website, which is the photography, and particularly the 360-degree photographs, which are stunning, and which feature in every section. There are sand dunes in Namibia, there's sunrise on Kande Beach in Malawi, there's the Agra Fort. They're a real feature of the blog and something that really makes it stand out and be a little different from lots of others that I've looked at. OK, moving on. Something completely different. I came across the www.howwetravel.co.uk website, written, I think, by Ross, but really a family project, introduced by Ross himself as follows. We're a family from Wales in the UK who just love to travel. In total, we've been travelling at home and abroad for over 40 years. First it was solo travel, then as a couple, and now, for over 15 years, as a family. He writes about their family's love of flying off to visit places they haven't seen before, to experience new things, cultures, currencies, climates, cuisine. They like to see famous sites and not-so-famous sites. They like to hear different languages, sample different foods. They like the busy and the vibrant. They like the quiet, peaceful and relaxing. So again, another website with lots and lots of different things to offer, including quite a comprehensive section on South Wales, where I think they live, and Tenby in particular. But I've picked out some bits and pieces on some of the cities which they cover. So they've been to New York and Stockholm, to Tokyo, to Vienna and Salzburg, to Venice, and closer to home, to Edinburgh and Cardiff. The emphasis is on family travel and very much on helping you to do the same, giving you the information you'd need about the places where they've been to decide 
whether it's for you or not. So, for example, I looked at the Stockholm Post and it opens with lots of details about the flight, the airport stay they did beforehand, all those things you need to know about airport transfer details at both ends of the journey, the hotel, the facilities, all those things that, yes, become a bit more important when you're travelling, not just by yourself, but with others, particularly with children. And then, yes, quite a lot of information about what they actually did in Stockholm. As Ross says, they did have a rough itinerary, but, quote, for us, a big part of enjoying Stockholm was just having a bit of a wander and stumbling across things that were unplanned. Stockholm is such a beautiful city. And yes, I can echo that. My memory of it is of a clean city full of waterfronts and little islands, the boats, that very special light you get when there's sea and sky all around you, the lovely coloured buildings. So he gives us a bit of an idea of the various areas of the city, all sorts of things I can't pronounce. I think it would be fair to say that the downtown central bit is the part known as Gamla Stan, and Ross highlights one square there called Stortoget. Small but stunning, he says. One of the city's oldest squares, and the place where you will find the museum dedicated to the Nobel Prize, which of course is awarded in Stockholm. There are much greener areas of the city too, called Dürgarden, for example, where quite a few of the museums are, Kungstradgarden. The linguist in me wants to guess that that means King Street Garden, but I could be wrong. An area where there are lots of outdoor activities. As Ross said, it felt very cosmopolitan. We saw people learning how to jive after work, for example. And he describes one of the most interesting visits they did while they were there, to the Vasa Museum, B-A-S-A, about which he writes, It's a bold claim, but we all agreed that the Vasa Museet is possibly the best museum we've ever visited. So, if you didn't know the story, the Vasa was a warship built in the 1600s, which, very sadly, on its maiden voyage out of Stockholm Harbour, sank, and which lay on the seabed for 333 years, until it was raised and renovated and made the central exhibit in the Vasa Museum, where you can learn the story of the tragedy, learn all about how the ship itself was recovered and preserved. My visit there is always stuck in my memory, and I do agree with Ross that if you have children with you, then it would be one of those museums you could get away with going to, where surely, surely, they would be captivated. Other things you can do in Stockholm include the City Hall, where you can take a tour, and the reason you might be intrigued to get in there is you will see the blue and golden halls where the Nobel Prize ceremony takes place every December. And the other thing to do there is climb up the tower for panoramic views of the city. Then there's the Royal Palace, which you can go inside, or which you could just hover outside at about quarter to twelve every morning because that's when the ceremony changing of the guards takes place. We learn a little about Swedish food, and the meal that seemed to go down best with Ross and his family was the meatballs, potato mash and lingonberry jam. I remember enjoying that myself. I also remember that when we went, we were told by anybody who knew Stockholm that the other thing to do there was definitely, definitely try the cinnamon buns. And being a practical sort of website too, it addresses the question, is Stockholm expensive? I think we all suspect that probably it is, so it's quite useful to have a rundown of the information which Ross gathered on that topic. And I think I could summarise his findings as being, well, not really and certainly not as expensive as you might have feared. He did say at one point, we found Stockholm to be on a par with the UK for some things, 
and he points out that lots of things in Stockholm are free. Entry to the Swedish Parliament, for example, and some of the museums. And he goes on to give detailed example costings for things like some of the transport, various meals they ate, entry tickets to certain places. So if you wanted to budget in advance, that would be really helpful. And turning then to look at a second post on the website, I picked Cardiff. And here's the opening. Cardiff is a great city. There are no two ways about it. The capital of Wales is packed with everything you'd expect from a major city. History, famous stadiums, shops, restaurants, parks, hotels, museums and cathedrals. It's on the water, so you've also got Cardiff Bay. Again, lots and lots of detail on getting there, transport around the city, ideas for where to stay and what it'll cost, ideas on where to eat. So lots of handy reference material if you're actually planning a visit and want to be organised well in advance. But also material for people just interested to know what is there in Cardiff to do and to see. And Ross has a number of suggestions. Don't miss the arcades, he says. I did not know this. Cardiff is sometimes called, apparently, the city of arcades because it's got the highest number of indoor arcades in any British city. And by arcades, we're talking Victorian and Edwardian little shopping streets, dating as far back as 1858. The architecture, says Ross, is something to behold. And if you go and look, you'll find lots of interesting little independent shops, loads of places to eat, and Ross's top recommendation is somewhere called Wally's Deli, something of an institution, he says, selling food and drink from all over the world. Nearby is Cardiff Market, another impressive example of Victorian architecture. A feast for the senses, says Ross, and the fresh fish and fruit and veg are hard to beat. And also a great place to sample that Welsh speciality, hot Welsh cakes, fried on the griddle in front of you, buy, eat, enjoy. And actually, don't forget, says Ross also, to go upstairs in the market, because then you get an overview of the whole building. There's also the Wales Millennium Centre, home to Welsh National Opera, somewhere you can walk around inside, perhaps catch a free performance in the foyer or visit an art exhibition. Or, of course, you could go to one of the actual performances in the theatre itself, where they have all sorts of different things, plays and concerts. There might be a band, there might be a comedian visiting. And, of course, they have a website on which you can check the programme in advance. Then there are the buildings connected to the National Assembly of Wales, so there's the Pierhead Building. You can go in there for free and have a look round, catch an exhibition about how the Assembly actually works. Sometimes there are art exhibitions there too. And next door in the Seled, a building Card is very proud of actually, built entirely from Welsh oak and Welsh slate. Sustainable, because the heating is provided by something called an earth exchange system. Something to do with the docks. Anyway, you can go in and have a look. There's a cafe and there's a public viewing gallery, so you can sit in there and watch live assembly debates, if that's your thing. And if you fancy a trip out of Cardiff, then somewhere very close, 20 minutes or so away by car, or indeed by bus, and that's Llandaff, where you will find a cathedral first built in the 12th century, in a suburb which Ross describes as having a village feel. So there you go, lots of ideas for a trip to the capital of Wales. Again, lots, lots more on the website that I haven't had time to mention, and I would summarise it as being a good place for the details of arranging travel, along with enough photographs and information on the places you could visit to give you an idea of whether it's somewhere you're interested in visiting, 
and in many places there are links to find out more about the places which Ross has mentioned. Thirdly then, we are going on to a website called dreamplanexperience.com run by Renee from Canada, who introduces herself as follows. Hello, I'm Renee, otherwise known as the Holiday Maker. There are two things about travelling that I love as much as the trip itself, the planning before I go and the sharing of my experiences with others when I return. She reminisces briefly about her first trip abroad when she was only 17, went to Germany on a school trip. I think we should give a shout out to those patient teachers who take school groups abroad. I know only too well the stress and worry that can be involved, but I also can think back over my teaching career to lots of young people who had their first trip abroad because I took them to France or Germany. And I quite like to think that some of them still remember that experience and that maybe it inspired them to go on and do lots more travelling. Anyway, Renee writes, that experience forever changed me and basically, yes, made her someone who wanted to travel. But I enjoyed her description of herself today because she writes, I am not your typical travel blogger. I did not sell my house or all my possessions. I am not a professional photographer or writer and I didn't quit my corporate day job. Travel is just what I love to do. I'm a bit of a daydreamer. It easily starts with a photo, an online article, a conversation with a friend, and the next thing you know, I'm in full-blown information-gathering mode. Yes, I think a lot of us can relate to that. So, she goes on to say, that's the inspiration for Dream Plan Experience. She wants it to be a place where you can find out information and be inspired to plan your next adventure. She has 11 different countries on the menu on the website. Canada, North America, nine European countries. Most of them have multiple posts. I think there are about 60 places covered in all and also sections on Airbnb and one called Travel Tips. So, for example, I had a quick look at the posts on Belgium, of which there are three. One on UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Belgium one on Art Nouveau Architecture in Brussels, and a third one called Five Must-See Cities Beyond Brussels. Again, absolutely a website that isn't only city-based. So, by way of example, there's a post on Prince Edward County in Ontario, for example, featuring, quote, so many wineries, breweries, eateries, cute shops and galleries. And there's another, also chosen pretty much at random by me, on Lake Constance in Germany which offers, says René, the perfect combination of a beautiful lake, picturesque towns and the majestic Alps. Culture, castles, history, elaborate gardens, something for everyone to enjoy. So really a wide-ranging website, but from which I've picked a couple of posts which are based on cities. I chose the one on Munich. If you're a City Breaks listener generally, you may know that we already have a series on Munich an old favourite of mine, so I was intrigued to know what Renée would make of that. And she does get straight in there. Let me guess, she says, when you think of Munich, you think of the world-famous Oktoberfest, traditional Lederhosen, Biersteins, sausages and pretzels. OK, yes, you're right, but there's so much more. Absolutely. And the rest of the post is structured into sections with titles, I think there are ten sections, and they have titles like My Favourite Square, My Favourite Beer Hall, my favourite market, and so on. So she's swooping in on 10 different aspects of the city, which, alongside the lovely photos that she's got for each one, 
give you a real flavour of the city and ideas for what you could do on a visit there. So, for example, my favourite beer hall. It's touristy, she says, but you can't go to Munich without visiting the Hofbräuhaus, a famous beer hall which dates right back to the 16th century. If you go, you will find a traditional German beer hall, a live brass band, you might learn the drinking chorus that's so popular, Eins, zwei, Gzuffa, which basically means one, two, down the hatch. I do remember the Hofbräuhaus, it's absolutely massive. Could be quite intimidating, because when you go in, there are just loads and loads of long, crowded tables, and people drinking and enjoying themselves, and making quite a lot of noise. And so I found it handy that Rene gives you a tip. Yes, she says, when you go in, you can just seat yourself wherever there's a space. I think if you weren't told that, you could well feel uncertain, and end up not going in which would be a great pity. Other things she mentions include going to the top of St Peter's Church, or the Peterskirche, as the Germans call it. In fact, I think they call it Alter Peter, Old Peter, because it is ancient, dates back to the 1100s. It also has a 17th century spire, and one of the things to do in Munich then is to climb up to the top, 306 steps, to the viewing platform, to take in what René calls the best view of Munich. On a clear day, she says, you may be able to see all the way to the Alps. So yes, I enjoyed the Munich Post very much. Munich's an old favourite of mine, and actually this might be a moment to just tell anybody who doesn't know that we do have a Munich series in City Breaks. There are 14 episodes, some on the main buildings in the city, so the royal palaces and the royal family, the Wittelsbach family, who included people like Ludwig II. He's the one who built those fairy tale castles in the Bavarian countryside. We have an episode on that, of course. More episodes on food, on drink, on the story of Hitler and the Hofbräuhaus and the Munich students, Hans and Sophie Scholl. Some of those very brave Germans who voiced their opposition to Hitler at the time. Anyway, if you have been to Munich and would like to reminisce, have any thoughts about going, or would just like to get a handle on German culture in general, do give us a try. Secondly, on René's website, I honed in on a post called Canada's coolest capital cities. I was intrigued by the idea that Canada apparently has 14 capital cities. Really, I thought? Yes, she explains. There's one for the country itself, one each for the 10 provinces, and one each for the three Canadian territories. Right, okay. So that includes well-known cities like Ottawa, the actual capital of Canada, um, Toronto, Quebec City, Winnipeg, Victoria, and so on. And I thought I'll have a little look at the write-ups on two of the cities I've actually, I'm afraid to say, never heard of. Shame on me. Right, okay, so there's Fredericton and Charlottetown. And actually, both of these sections were written by guests to René's website. I always think it's a really good idea when a website has guest writers. It's just a way of tapping into a lot more knowledge than you could ever personally have yourself. A bit like I'm doing currently, really, with these three websites. Anyway, the one on Fredericton, written by Tatiana, a.k.a. Family Road Trip Guru, informs us that Fredericton is the capital of New Brunswick, and that it's quite small by capital standards, 58,000 people or so, a charming little town on the banks of the St John River, lots of green public spaces, musically famous, it hosts an annual Harvest Jazz and Blues Festival, for example, which is internationally renowned, somewhere where you can visit the King's Landing Living History Museum and learn all about 19th century life in Canada. 
and somewhere very suited for nature lovers because there are lots of great hiking areas. She names a couple, the Hyla Park Nature Preserve and the Curry Mountain Trail, and helpfully suggests that if you want to know this sort of stuff, you should go to the Trail Visitor Centre in Fredericton. And then a second guest post on Charlottetown, written by Nicole, who has a blog intriguingly titled Wandering with the Dromo Manic, and who opens her post by saying, Charlottetown is one of the smallest capital cities in the country, but don't be fooled by its size. That's what makes it special. It has a waterfront and a picturesque little road known as Victoria Row, pedestrians only, lined with bars and restaurants, the perfect place to sit outside in the summer with a beer and to enjoy fresh seafood, mussels, lobster poutine, lobster tacos. You get the idea. Somewhere where you can wander around the little shops or the boardwalk, perhaps sit on a bench at a waterfront restaurant and watch the world go by. Then there's an intriguing sounding activity which is something to do with various mouse statues hidden throughout the city and from which you can learn all about Charlottetown's heritage. Or you could go to the Confederation Centre of Arts or perhaps catch some maritime live music in one of the local bars. So another website with masses of variety, lots and lots of what you might call personal experience type writing. So enough detailed information about what René did in these various places to give a real flavour to all the research which she's also done and which lies behind the material that's there. Do go and have a look. I really haven't done it justice. OK, so that's more or less it for this week then. A big thank you to the three participating bloggers, Becca, Ross and Renee. I hope you will like what you hear. I hope other people will like what they hear about your work and go and have a proper look at it. And maybe too, there will be some people listening who decide to give City Breaks a go as well. The podcasts go out weekly. You can subscribe to them anywhere where you normally get podcasts or you can find them on our website, www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk. Do get in touch if you have ideas for a City Break that you'd like to recommend or if you know somebody who runs a travel website that I haven't spotted yet, which would be a good one to feature. You can email citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at citybreakscast. There'll be another City Break Ideas at the beginning of July. And before that, three more episodes from our City Breaks London series, starting next week with an episode on Greenwich. Do join us if you have time and inclination. For the moment then, thank you very much to everyone who's been listening. Thank you particularly to our three contributors and goodbye.